All right. Greetings, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Thanks for joining us. You guys online, thank you for joining us. We will jump back into 1 Corinthians. It looks like maybe we didn't get quite to chapter 8, so we'll jump back into chapter 7 to get the overarching context here as well. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we engage in the various callings and stations to which you have called us, we thank and praise you for your mercies in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk in ways that are pleasing to you, entrusting ourselves and our righteousness into the hands of our Savior Jesus Christ, the pastor and bishop of our souls. May you guide and bless us in our studies of your word that we might understand them within their original context and how those same principles apply to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you look all the way back, we've we've been talking about this, like really in chapter 6 is where this whole thread begins. And this libertine antinomian impulse within Corinth, of course, manifest in their keeping within the communion this man who's guilty of egregious sexual sin, and then this sort of Greek idea that seems to have infected their faith, general Gnostic idea that the material can do whatever it wants, the spiritual is something separate. Paul setting all of that straight and saying, look, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. We live according to the spirit and live. And then he gets into some specific statements and questions that the Corinthians have made in regard to marriage. Now, what's looming and, and not quite obvious maybe to us, but obvious in the original context, is what's looming is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, that persecutions are going to continue and indeed be amplified, even in a place like Corinth. And so there is a sense of of great uh, pressure and great evil that is about to come. And so much of Paul's guidance in regard to marriage is uh, specific to this. So that's like chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so he's he's answering the specific questions they have about marriage. Now, we went through that argument already, so I'm just trying to get us back into the context. At chapter 7, verse 17, there's this kind of important moment where he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has divided, apportioned, assigned to him, and to which God has called him. And then if you were circumcised, remain circumcised, uncircumcised, remain uncircumcised. If a slave, no big deal, you're free in the Lord. If free, no big deal, you're a slave unto the Lord. So it's not about your station in life. Now we're in verse 23. He says, you were bought with a price. He's referring to Christ purchasing us not with gold or silver, but with his own holy and precious blood. Do not become slaves of men. 
Now, it certainly might include physical earthly slavery, but I don't believe that that's really properly in view. Don't become conscious bound, conscience bound to men. Don't let men rule your conscience or your heart, but let Christ rule your conscience and your heart. So that same sentiment taught by Christ in, in vain do they worship me, teaching as commandments, the doctrines of men, that kind of idea. And then in 25, we got onto this specific circumstances of what about the betrothed or the Parthenon, the virgin. So at, at verse 25, and maybe that's as good a place as any to kind of get a running start in this really long thread. So at verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy or faithful. I think that in view of the present distress, so that's what I was talking about a moment ago, the pressures and persecutions upon the church at this time, which will be heightened in the decades to come, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be uh, free or loosed from her. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, this is quite contextual, obviously. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Now, here's an important principle to glean out of this, because we're going to touch on the topic of adiaphora tonight. And already, Paul is instructing on something that is beyond sin. So he's saying, look, it's whether you marry or not marry, even in this context, you're not sinning either way. But I am advising you to remain as you are. That's an important thing because some want to limit the the authority of the, the office of, of the word or the authority of the right-hand kingdom as being merely an authority um, that is limited by the boundary of sin. What is sin or not, and then also likewise forgiveness. But I'll assert to you that Paul is standing in a very long tradition of going beyond that including the first council recorded in Acts 49 BC, where, of course, they advise against sexual immorality. Well, that's a matter of sin. But then also not eating strangled meat or strangled animals, which is not a matter of sin or not. But that advice is still given. So what I also have here um, available, this is called Denzinger. The Roman Catholics are especially familiar with this, but why I have a copy is it's a compendium, a compendium of creeds, definitions, and declarations, and matters of faith and morals. So this will go through basically all the councils and what was decreed. And there is plenty decreed in virtually all the councils of the church, legitimate or illegitimate, <laughs> that goes beyond mere definition of sin and goes on to compel Christians toward this, that, or the other thing. What about the Lutherans? Aren't we free from all of that? Afraid not. So here is a book called Church Order, published by uh, CPH, Concordia Publishing House. And what's so valuable about this is it's penned by Martin Chemnitz, who's the chief author of the Formula of Concord, the last document of the Book of Concord. And many times, uh, especially in the worship wars as of late, the Book of Concord has certain 
quotations ripped out of context that make it sound like, hey, you can worship however you want. In fact, to hold that position is to, is to necessarily be Lutheran. If you, if you don't hold that position, you're binding people's consciences. No, says Chemnitz, and then he writes this giant thing called the church order, which dictates how all the churches in his region and vicinity will worship, what their liturgy will look like, how their pastors will dress, how their pastors will preach and teach, and so on and so forth. Okay, so obviously some of that a matter of sin and righteousness, some of that a matter of law and gospel, but some of it quite well beyond that. All right, and then... Now, I think it lacks in some of the glory, but what I have here in my hand is a copy of Faith Lutheran Church's Bylaws and Constitution. And what you'll find here, maybe particularly in the bylaws, are all kinds of regulations that go well beyond the definition of sin, or the definition of righteousness, the definition of law, or the definition of gospel. All right. So we live in a, such a bizarre age that these things have to be stated and have to be proven from the scriptures. Uh, but it's worthwhile doing so that the church has made all kinds of pronouncements and legislations and commands and prescriptions that go well beyond the definition of merely what's sinful or not sinful. Make sense? A subtle point, but an all important point and one that you can see Paul doing right here. In Corinth in the first century. Okay, so again, at uh, 28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, uh, she has not sinned. So it's not a matter of sin. Then Paul goes on to say, yet those who marry will have, uh, it's the same word for tribulation, tribulation of the flesh, which gets, translated and smoothed over into worldly troubles. Tribulation of the flesh. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present schema or form of this world is passing away. So Paul obviously sees an imminent march toward, uh, an imminent changes, structural changes to the earth that are marching toward uh, the return of Christ and the final death of this earth. Um, the present schema of this world is passing away, it do, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that Paul thinks here that the end of the world is at hand. It simply means things as they stand now are going away. So I don't want to overplay either side of that. I do just want to point out that that's a possibility within Paul's language here. All right, so he continues on. And again, we covered most of this last week, if I'm not mistaken. Did we stop at 32 or 36, somewhere in there? I can't remember. I'll slow down if we went past at least the 34. Okay, good. Okay, good. I'll keep going pretty quick then. 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried or yeah, the unmarried man is it's kind of weird language because anxiety is fine or worries. 
but there's like a positive worry here. It's not the cleanest rhetoric in the world, but it works. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Does Paul want that person to be free from such anxieties? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying, I don't want you to worry about serving the Lord anymore. Your mileage may vary. If you disagree with me, fine. But I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is uh, anxious about the things of the Lord. And man here specifically male, not generically. We'll get to the women in a minute. How to please the Lord. We talked about that. That again, right here out of the scriptures is this idea of pleasing the Lord uh, by one's words and deeds. Now, contrasting that in verse 33, but the married man is anxious about uh, worldly things, probably fleshly things. I didn't look that up. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. So it seems to be, me to be the case that in context, he's saying, look, I'd, I'd have you be free from earthly anxieties and focused on the Lord. All right. And then the second part of verse 34, and the unmarried or betrothed woman, again, virgin here, virgin woman. So we do change from male to female. The unmarried or virgin betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And note that it's not just faith in Christ that's in view. Otherwise, there would be no anxiety about how to be holy in body and spirit. So there's more to it than that. But the married, so here's the contrast, just completely parallel to what we saw before in 32 through 34a. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So you see the symmetry. Then here comes the conclusion, 35. I say this for your own benefit, that is for your own good, not to lay a restraint upon you. So in other words, I'm not imposing my will upon you per se. I'm giving you good advice that will be to your benefit if you take it. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So that last line especially is why I think that he's not telling us to not be concerned about the things of the Lord. Okay, so then on to 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving. Oh gosh, this one's a hard one. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed or virgin, if his passions are strong, which is an interesting read, it could also be if she is uh huperachmas beyond youth. And it has to be. That's the next part. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity. Now the ESV is following this line of desire, but having his desire under control. So making it a matter of sexual impulse or not. 
But that could also be rendered having authority over his own will. You've got this question of age and authority as opposed to desire. And has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Keep her as his virgin, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed or virgin does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. All right, it's one of those where the language is really tough, but the concept isn't. And the nitty-gritty can be wrangled over probably ad nauseum. But the last line clears it up fairly well. So Paul would be urging, so even if you just take betrothed as exactly as it sounds, the ancient version of betrothal is a little different than the modern version of engagement. This is a pledge and an oath to be married. So one, the ESV reading would effectively be if you're betrothed, but you cannot get married, you, you can not, uh, you can control your desire, your sexual desire. It would be better for you to not be married at this time. Um, but if you can't control that sexual impulse, go ahead and get married. That would be the ESV reading. And I think this, I think the Lutheran study Bible basically follows that. Yeah, please. So is, Separating from the betrothed status, not the same as divorce. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. So what it would be, it would be um, to it would be the same as divorce historically. So he's not saying become unbetrothed. He's just saying remain betrothed. Don't consummate. Don't become married and consummate. So it would be effectively remain uh, sexually abstinent and engaged. But you're still living together. They're still living together. I don't know if they are. I yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. So um, since we're, I mean, since we're looking at from the angle of uh, desire and the sexual desire, take a look at the study notes in your Lutheran uh, study Bible, and you can get a fuller sense for what they think, what the editors think is going on here. Let's see, seven thirty. Ah, yeah. So if you pick up at 36, not behaving properly, they read into that falling into disgraceful passions. It's not so certain that that's the read, but okay. Falling into dis because, but not behaving properly may be compelling her to remain in this state of suspension. And then how the language of, um, she is Kuparakmas uh, beyond youth. She doesn't want to remain in the state of suspension. She wants to have children. S- distinct from sexual desire and not being able to control that. But you think you're not behaving properly to her and keeping her in a state of suspension. She wants children. She's getting older or she's on the cusp. And it would be, and so she's compelling you to be married, then be married. I, I think that that's an equal or even better reading than the ESV. Yes, sir. 26. 26? Because of the present distress. And it says Christians face special challenges in that hour of falling at the last time. Mm. So if he's regarding 
peace is in the last of times. All this makes sense, but don't get married. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did he think that he was in the end of times? Yeah, I'm not so sure as the study note is. Maybe. But I, I think that what Paul, what Paul sees coming is, uh, and, and already is, already is here, is persecution. And he sees increased persecution coming. And he probably, I mean, he probably sees that as, well, yeah, possibly that's what begins the end. Um, but I don't know that he's that committed to that here. He wouldn't tell somebody who's betrothed, don't get married, unless he felt, you know, that he were getting close to the end. It's quite. There are more important things to pray Mm-hmm. The whole conversation is what you're married, you're worrying about your husband. You shouldn't be, mm-hmm. be focused mm-hmm. on what's coming. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I think yeah, I wouldn't add anything to your statement. The only the only question I have in my mind is Paul may be saying, put all these things on hold because of what's coming. He may have something penultimate in mind as opposed to something ultimate. He may have who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe a few years, maybe a decade of persecution. He may still think the end is imminent, but that what's going to come upon them right now is not necessarily the end. I don't know. It's an it's an open question. Yeah, the, it's not going to be good. Exactly. So, so whether whether Paul thinks as the I mean the study note confidently asserts this, and I'm just not I'm not sure I agree with it, or I'm not sure I'm that confident that Paul regarded this as the last times. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Either way, your point stands, my point stands, our point stands, that Paul's saying that because of the impending persecution and the impending fluctuations, just if you're married, act as though you're not. If you're not married, you know, or I mean, what what is it? Um, if you're mourning, act as though you're not mourning. If you're dealing with the world, act as though you have no dealings with it. If you're betrothed but not married, remain as you are if you can. And then here's where the view splinters. If she's getting old and nagging you, go ahead and get married. If she, or if on the other hand, the ESVs read, if you can't, if you're, if you can't keep from uh, your sexual desire, then get married. Right. But he says these things as a concession. Just assumed that um, he had. Um, because didn't Jesus predict that? Yeah. Now there, there are ways away from Jerusalem, but right. The, that kind of persecution of the church. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mean, we know, I don't, I don't have a list for you. I didn't uh, look it up, but but we know. Oh, it's in my commentary in Revelation, not in Revelation. But um, you can map out. I mean, we're. <laughs> it's not long until there's major persecutions coming upon the church. That f- it's already happening to one degree or another to the apostles themselves, and so the idea that Paul would say, "Yeah, yeah," all I'm say, all I would say in in summation or summary is. You don't have to believe that Paul regarded this as the last times in order for it to all function the same way. It all functions the same way. Whether he thinks that this is the penultimate, a penultimate thing or an ultimate thing, it all functions the same way. And it's pretty contextual. I mean, would Paul say this in our day and age? I don't, I don't know that he would. It's pretty darn contextual. Yeah. It seems to me. Time and time again, we mentioned this, that it's just better not to get married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that that 
It's not the way God intended. It's got that a good life is a gift from God, and it's part of the natural order. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it seemed like to me that uh, God intended us to have a partner. Not only to have sex, but to grow old again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just uh, it works out better, you know, if you have a family and the people you can uh, relate to. You said, well, you know, if you worried about your wife and trying to please your wife, then it takes you away from your focus on God. Well, but God wants you to be focused on your wife. Mm -hmm. That's your duty as a man. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like to me that it's bias, and and it doesn't seem right. Now, maybe I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, but time and time again, it says it's better not to get married. Yeah, and I think it's better to get married. You know, if you if that's what you want. Now, some maybe some people don't want to get married. That's fine, but it's part of the natural order. I mean, the back. I mean, Eve was given to Adam because Adam was alone, and then he didn't. You did much better, well, of course, you didn't do much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is not good for the man to be alone. And that's true even when she, yeah, even when she gives him the poison food. Yeah, it, I mean, your point, yeah, your point really, Rad, is great proof for why we shouldn't do Bible studies. We should... <laughs> We we should we should just read the book, you know, from start to finish, over and over and over again. So Paul really lays the the foundation that you're speaking about earlier in chapter seven, if you recall, where um, apart from the particular context, he talks about the gift of marriage and the gift of celibacy. And I mean, Luther and friends will say the gift of celibacy is extremely rare. It's extremely rare. By and large, the vast majority, we should look to get married. And so Paul does lay that foundation. I don't think there's any disagreement between Paul and the rest of scriptures, Paul and Genesis, I, I, or Paul and you on that particular point. Yeah, I think he, I think Paul lays that foundation. And then he's talking about the particular circumstances, though, really heightening and pressing, um, the, the rationale, the reason for remaining, um, single or unmarried or not going any further into marriage if you're betrothed. And you can do it in a godly way. Okay, so like I said, it's really easy to kind of get bogged down in the details of this section, but isn't the concept pretty, pretty clear, especially as it's summarized in 38? So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Yeah. Okay. 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Okay. Because again, Paul sees it in the case of the she, the wife here, that her, she's either going to serve the Lord or serve another husband. So as long as she's not burning, uh, like back in chapter seven, as long as she's not burning with passion, as long as she can exercise self-control, then Paul says 
if that's the case, then she should choose the Lord, not another husband. I think part of what's hard for us to wrap our minds around this as Americans is we because we view it as like, choose a spouse or just choose more of me. <laughs> it's like, well, why wouldn't I choose a spouse? That's actually more selfless. And the answer to that would be like, yeah, true. We don't even have on our radar this serving the Lord as the other option. That's the, the option. That That's the point that I think we should really draw out from this text is, is how thoroughgoing that is. I know there's a whole bunch of nonsense out there right now, but like the theology of singleness or the blessing of singleness or this, that, or the other thing. I mean, the Bible doesn't really talk about that at all, except unless you are 100% engaged and devoted to the Lord. So that's the idea of, I mean, if you go back to 32, in regard to men, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Is he? He should be. That's the point. And then likewise, the woman um, at the uh, latter part of uh, verse 34, or sorry, the first part maybe. Yeah, it is. It's the first part. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So the question there would be, is she, are our unmarried women anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So the alternative isn't like married versus singleness the way we conceive of it, but is your business about uh, a spouse or is your business about the Lord? Those are your two options, according to Paul here. Why do why why are so many people, so many of our, and I'm not trying to point fingers or be nasty here, but the epidemic of singleness in our country and late marriage, I mean, why is it happening? so that you can get more money and so that you can fly around the world and so that you can go on vacations and have $11 lattes and eat $27 sandwiches. And that's, that's what it's for apparently, but it has nothing to do with the Lord. And so that's where singleness really uh, singleness as being married to oneself ought to be utterly rejected by the church. Singleness as one devoted to the Lord or one devoted to a spouse. That's what set forward scripturally. For Christians, obviously. Okay, well, maybe that's enough on that, unless you all have a burning desire to continue with this conversation. <laughs> all right, we'll jump into chapter 8 then, since I'm not seeing any, any hands here. Now, concerning food offered to idols. So, Paul pivoting here, and again, you'll note by the quotation marks that Paul is quoting something that they've already written to him, which is a marker that 1 Corinthians is a very occasional uh, epistle. That is to say, he's speaking to specific events that are occasioned by the circumstances in Corinth. Uh, Romans would not be an occasional epistle. It's just very general. He's writing a thesis. He's writing a treatise. He's covering things that aren't particularly specific to the occasion of the Christians in Rome. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. This, quote, unquote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Oh, isn't that a great line? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. (laughs) So great. So great. So knowledge versus love, and that's going to lead on. One thing I will draw your attention to, because it'll it'll help sort things out in your mind a bit as you're getting reacquainted with this section of 1 Corinthians. If you look down at the study note that talks about chapters 8 through 10, I think this is really, really helpful. Questions had arisen over whether Christians should eat food sacrificed to idols. This food was eaten uh, one in a temple dining room, two at sacrifices involving actual worship, three purchased in the marketplace, or four eaten in an unbeliever's home. And you'll see references to chapter 8 and chapter 10, because this is one of these places where if you pull it out of context, it looks like Paul's contradicting himself. And if you, and if you don't understand the different situations to which Paul is speaking, uh, you, you'll, you're just going to end up confused. So really helpful to know these things in advance, especially just going back to it in a temple dining room. So like not really any different than when you eat at the restaurants at Disneyland. <laughs> uh, at least I think I, I think I'm funny anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. So a temple dining room and somewhere in here, it talks about this. Yeah. Uh, under the note on verse 10. So chapter eight, verse 10, that note. A different situation from that in chapter 10, where idol rituals were involved. Many Greco-Roman temples had what we would consider dining or banquet facilities, like Golden Corral. Meals were commonly eaten there, particularly for business or social functions, such as birthday or wedding celebrations. So an important thing Uh, to understand what the context is here in chapter 8. All right, let's hear what he has to say then. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. Now, Paul's going to agree with that, but modify that also. And that, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. So these are things that they've written to him. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. There's the modification. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. 
That is, they can't make a distinction in their minds. When they're there in the temple di- the temple dining room of the false god and they're eating it, they, they cannot make a distinction between it being mere food and it actually being participation in idol worship. In, the, in some cases, in the quote-unquote real presence of the idol, of the false god. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, that's a good place to break and make sure we've got the concept. So just to run back through it, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. In what way is that true? If you just make up a god and carve a wood statue of it in your garage, there's nothing there. Right? It's just it's not like you materialize a god. Okay, so there's just nothing there. And insofar as they make the statement, that's true. And there is no god but one. He's agreeing with them. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So if you look at like Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 82, you'll get a flavor for this. God, after the Tower of Babel, disinherits the nations and gives them over to uh, angels that are then called gods. And beyond that, we don't have time to get into it. These are also like the the principalities and powers that Paul refers to here and there, that that is like kind of what he has in mind. So there are many gods and many lords. Even the scriptures call Satan the god of this world. Uh, yes, yes, I think so. I think, I think the best way to understand, well, yeah. Hopefully I won't scandalize anyone or get our, get us in a quagmire. I think that the moral agency of the angels, I think that there are, so we know that Satan falls. Okay. Moral fall. He can still go up into heaven until Christ ascends victorious. Satan has a moral fall. I think other angels that are good have their own moral falls at later times. When do all the other angels fall? We all think that they fell at the same time that Satan fell, but we only think that because John Milton botches the whole timeline in Paradise Lost and ruins Western culture on this point. So why do we think that they all fell when Satan fell? What is the biblical evidence for that? You're likely to find the chirping of crickets. There's not any biblical evidence. There does seem to be biblical evidence that otherwise good angels, like Satan himself was created, fall at later times. And one of those falls, it seems to be the case that God in Deuteronomy 32 says, all right, I already got sick of you once. I flooded the whole earth, destroyed all but eight of you, tried to do a a great reset, and here you are building a building a temple into the into the skies and the whole thing's a disaster again i'm done and he disinherits all the nations hands them over to um, what psalm 82 will call gods small g gods Um, but these are these are what we would call good angels they're just of the highest order and then these these angels fall by not being stewards of the nations and leading them to repentance and trying to guide them back to God, but by causing the nations to worship them instead of God. 
And thus, Psalm 82 talks about how these immortal gods will yet die like men, will now die like men on account of their mismanagement. So I think it's a fall of these individual angels, a moral fall, and there's a punishment involved in that. And I think that's spelled out in Psalm Psalm 82. So many other ways we could go down this rabbit hole, but perhaps we shouldn't. Um, How do we get off onto this tangent? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then when he talks about there are many gods and many lords, I mean, Scripture calls uh, Satan the god of this world. Does it mean that Christ on the throne, like, gave up and doesn't? No, it means that Satan is an underling and is actually, because they listened to Satan, uh, Adam and Eve and the whole human race listened to Satan instead of God and handed over, then Satan is their god. All that is born of the flesh are sons of disobedience, the brood of vipers, the offspring of the serpent, all of these things. And then for there to be any other race or any other generation, God has to enact that. And of course, after God hands over the nations, Deuteronomy 32, then he selects one particular man from which he will draw a new nation that he will be their God. Do you remember his name? Abraham. Abraham. Bingo. And Abraham, all his promise to God is, I will make you a nation, my nation, I will be your God, and so forth. And then God claims to be the God of that nation. Every so often, God reminds everyone that he will bring into judgment the other nations. So he's, he's handed them over to these lesser beings, and these lesser beings have become perverted, and the nations have become fully perverted he will render judgment against them. So he doesn't reject his sovereignty in that sense. But you can understand then what's how that's all going on. And how the gods of the, um, in the promised land, the gods of the fallen peoples there are constantly against Yahweh and Yahweh against them. So it gives a little more three-dimensionality there to what's going on in the biblical text. So yeah, when he talks about many gods and many lords, that's what he's up to. And it's, it's much more dynamic. The scriptures are much more dynamic and three-dimensional. Like these beings don't know everything. I, I accidentally turned here earlier today. I guess it was fortuitous, but I turned to the entire wrong chat, the entire wrong book when Vicar was telling me to go to Philippians and I went to Ephesians. Where was it now? Yeah. Where was it? What was the chapter four? Is that right? Ephesians 3. Yeah, so this is really wild. So Ephesians 3, um, and if you want to go to 7 and following, like like the cosmos is a much bigger place, and there's much more diversity of beings than we're aware of. And we tend to think of things as all monolithic. And even like the bad angels, we tend to think of, well, they're all united as one. And they're all just monolithic and they all share the same personality. And, um, and, and the good angels are all monolithic and it's impossible for them to fall and this, that, and the other thing. And maybe at a certain point there is, but a lot of that comes into our tradition via Augustine. And Augustine doesn't have a whole lot of ground he's standing on there. 
at any rate, not to go down that rabbit trail. Look at 3.7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, that's where it starts to get really wild, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities over in the Middle East, mm-hmm. in Europe, in the heavenly places. Wild. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So again, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to these powers who otherwise did not know. Now, if you go back to um, 1 Corinthians... See if I can find this. Look at First uh, Corinthians two six. We'll return to the place, but know it a little better than the first time. So First Corinthians six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and his hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, are we talking about Pilate and Caiaphas there? I hardly think so. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, What God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So, right, this is a secret that if the rulers of this age had understood, they never would have crucified Christ. So God has duped them and in Christ, and now their duping is is literally being spread by the church, and the knowledge of how they were duped, and the unfolding of the knowledge of God's divine plan is being unfolded by us little fleshly beings unto these great powers that be. And it's got to be humiliating. And God wouldn't have it any other way. So that's what I think is going on. All right, well, that's more than you asked for, for sure. But when he talks about, I think it's worth fleshing out. So he's not saying all idols... um, aren't false or all false religions there's there's nothing behind there you know otherwise you get this impression that like a false religion's just made up by like like uh islam is just made up by muhammad out of out of thin air he just invents this thing and everybody's like yeah yeah right we totally we're down with it let's uh let's worship allah and let's uh, convert everybody by the sword no, there's almost certainly a demonic power, an entity behind that. Almost certainly. Um, with all of the massive major religions there are. In fact, you can tend to see them morphing over time. So that you have Mars, but you also have Aries, and then you have the 
whatever South American tribe version of the same thing, and so on and so forth. So there are real, quote-unquote, gods that rule through vices, um, that rule over nations. By the way, Daniel is filled with this. Uh, Daniel is filled with angelic beings over governments, and the fighting that's going on is spiritual and physical. Uh, it yes, seems sir. like in the Old Testament, like different tribes had different gods too. I mean, it seems like there's like a half dozen different names that they had in the Old Testament, like yeah, so Asherah, Moloch, or Baal, yeah, yeah. Well, so they're taking the gods of the of the but see, this is the thing that Christians are kind of, I mean, I, I hope waking up to is that Molech has just changed form. The the local temple of Molech is called Planned Parenthood. Like that's that's what's going on. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's just shifted form. So, I mean, yeah. Well, maybe that's enough. That's enough. It's like Baal and Ashtoreth haven't gone anywhere. They're just, um, their temples haven't gone anywhere. They're just called nightclubs and bars. And they're they're small and large and spread all over. So, would you say they're, they're, I mean, they know the end coming. They know from the beginning, the, the beginning and an end to the creation. Yeah, yeah. So, don't they, if you think they're, they're changing. If the if the angel gets to look at and say, "Okay, I'm going to go with this side," or wait a while and say, "Well, I'm going to wait a while, maybe a thousand years, and see who's winning this battle." Yeah, absolutely. I I mean that's a possibility, or at least a possibility up to the time. The scripture would leave open those kinds of things. We also completely. I mean, we human beings build massive hierarchies. We don't think that the angels have the same. There's biblical testimony that they do. <laughs> Whether those hierarchies are put in place by God or whether they're constructed by the angels, there's all kinds of bureaucracy and government and difference of opinion, and there may well even be godly differences of opinion amongst the good angels, just as there are godly differences of opinion amongst human beings, where you'd say, well, neither is guilty of sin, but there's a difference of opinion. Why would we not assume that angels who are more intelligent than we, but not of ultimate and absolute intelligence, wouldn't have the same exact thing? So. According to Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So anyway, not not to get down this rabbit trail, but and and look, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about any of this stuff, and um, I'm just trying to say it really benefits us. Here would be my theme and thesis to open our minds a bit to the biblical, the world, the spiritual world that the Bible presents to us, because it's anything but simple and black and white and easy and um, monolithic the way we think it is. There's uh, there's so much diversity above us and hierarchy and order above us. Uh, it's a lot more complicated um, than than we'll readily, uh, I think, than most of the church wants to admit. Yeah, but I'm thinking. Let's say you're in. It's like being in the the Nazi administration. You could be, you know, high up, but if if you're losing the war and you know you're going to go down, I mean it's. That's my thing. How, how do you think of that? I mean, 
So you're the top dog in the ship thinking. That doesn't make it very good. Mm, yeah, yeah. But I don't think Satan's goal is to win uh, conventionally. I mean, Satan's goal is to do as much damage as he possibly can. So say, so if you can't beat God, right? Okay. You're, what you do is you hurt everything that God loves and you try to destroy it so that even the sweet, what is sweet is bitter. And that's really say, I mean, that's really Satan's whole MO. It's a Pyrrhic victory. I'm going to take out as much as I can. I'm going to, I'm going to have your image bearers and your children in hell with me and as many as possible. Um, whatever you love, I'm going to hurt and harm and stab and defile. And it won't be a conventional victory, but it may be in his twisted mind, some kind of moral or emotional victory. The so a, a, a battle that God would have a victory so pyrrhic, he'd wish that he never engaged. That kind of twisted satanic logic, which of course is foolish, but that's the kind of thing. Yeah, that's the kind of thing these 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 things are up up to. Okay, well that's enough there. Yeah, if you read Revelation, so it's not enough there, I guess. If you read if you read Revelation with an eye toward this diversity, and I don't know that I've taught through it with an eye toward this diversity, like every bad guy in Revelation, according to the modern Western church, is Satan. And it just doesn't have to be the case. And if it's not the case, it's much more interesting because then what you actually see, and you start to see this reflected in texts of First uh, Peter and Jude, is that there are angels that are so bad, God's already locked them up. And so that within the hell, which is kind of this domain that the evil beings can pass in and out of, there's a prison. Uh, Peter calls it a fulake, a prison. And it may well be that there are some angels that are so bad that are so ticked off God, he's got them locked up in there. Now in, uh, and then Satan joins them in chains. Remember this from Revelation? But at a certain point, God opens the abyss. He opens the prison. He opens Fulake and they all get to run out and have their last day in the sun doing as much destructive violence as they can. And then God wipes them out forever. So yeah, if you read, if you read Revelation with this diversity, this biblical diversity in mind, you come to some different conclusions about what's going on. Not everything's Jesus versus Satan. Okay, so yeah, with that in mind, then clearly there's idols that are just fabricated, and then there's huge religions behind which there are real sentient beings. We know that there is one true God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's the one true God, Father and Son. Now, does Paul deny the Spirit? Of course not. The Spirit's the one indwelling him and inspiring these words, but he doesn't always see fit to mention the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't here. Seven, however, not all possess this knowledge. So here's a full-on contradiction, at least on its face of uh, verse one. We know that all of us possess knowledge. He's like, okay, not all possess this knowledge but some through former association with idols. So in the congregation in Corinth, there were some that ate at these temples and worshiped these temples and their worship is their eating and their eating is their worship. And they can't extricate their conscience from this thing. So now that they're Christians, they go and the idea of eating food is, is as eating food as really offered up to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So they look at it as like, I'm sinning by going to this thing or I'm sinning by eating this food. 
And if they do it, then they're going against conscience, they're damaging their conscience. And in their own minds, they're now engaged in a kind of, uh, uh, a, a kind of syncretism, right? A kind of worshiping of two different gods. All right. Eight, food will not... Wait a minute. Am I over time? No. Thank goodness. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Then food will not commend us to God. So whether you eat or not doesn't commend us to God. Christ alone commends us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So it's an indifferent thing. And this is where next week we can pick up proper on the topic of adiaphora, which is a Greek to Latin to English of um, things neither commanded nor forbidden. Look what, look what verse 9 is, though. But take care that this exousia, which is right is okay, authority, this authorization of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. This is different than the scandalon. It's different than, than pure apostasy here. It's a proscama, a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you having knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. All right, so the point we'll, uh, we'll touch on next week is if an adiaphora is a thing neither commanded nor forbidden, how on earth can such a thing become sinful? But indeed it can, even a sin against Christ himself. So I made a hyperbolic statement last week that nine out of ten Lutherans don't know what adiaphora is. But this is part of what I mean. People, Lutherans think that adiaphora is neither commanded nor forbidden, so it can never cross the threshold into sin. Paul right here says it absolutely can. The second point would be that Lutherans think that as soon as you call something an adiaphora, God has neither forbidden it nor commanded it. That that's the end of the discussion. Au contraire. That's the beginning of the discussion. If it were something that the Lord had commanded or forbidden, that would be the end of the discussion. (laughs) But since it isn't, the discussion has only begun whether this is wise or whether this is foolish, whether this is righteous, or whether this might even become sinful based on the specific context. All right, that's it for tonight. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.